Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Libby and I are uh, delighted at the opportunity to come and share with you all the way from the great state of Tennessee to encourage you during this time of, of uh, transitional moment in the life of this fine church. In places I've been as pastor in this great country, in the Four Corners, up in Portland, Oregon, Indiana, uh, Rhode Island, and 20 years in the nation's capital. Everybody thought I had an accent. <laughs> but I'd, I'd say to <laughs> Deborah over here, I, said, I don't have no accent here. <laughs> <laughs> Oklahoma people talk like Tennessee people. <laughs> so it's good to identify with you. Have y'all noticed how most people want to sit on the front row of a ball game, in the middle row at the movies, and the back row at the church? <laughs> Notice that? That's one lady broke the mold one time, and she was greeted by a friendly usher who helped her up a flight of steps. And as they were walking, he said, where would you like to sit, ma'am? And she said, the front row, please. That kind of caught him off guard. And he said, ah, they're having a guest preacher today. He's probably boring. You don't want to be on the front row. And she goes, you know who I am? He said, nope. She said, I'm the preacher's mama. (laughs) Whoa, he thought. Well, do you know who I am? And she said, certainly not. He said, good. (laughs) And lit out of there and hightailed it. A slippery word, that word, good. Maybe you saw the brilliant Spielberg classic movie, Saving Private Ryan. I was deeply moved by that film and... Some of you that may not have seen it, it's it's about a World War II veteran who returns to Normandy, and he, it's decades after he survived the war, but now he's an old man, and he returned to grieve over the grave of one of the men who died to save him. A whole detail went out to save this young man at that time, and The dying words of the captain in the detail was, earn it. Earn it. Make something out of this. And so Ryan looks over at his wife as he's trying to fight back the tears, and he said, I've tried to live my life as best I could. And then this, tell me I'm a good man. And she said, you are. It seems like everybody's okay with being called good, but Jesus. When the rich young ruler came up to him and called him good master, he squirmed at that. Why do you call me good? He said, only God is good. Good, good, good. Jesus is more interested in servanthood than being good. 
Certainly we like to think that our church is good. But my question is, what makes it good? What makes church good? And so serving in all across this country for 50 years, I've learned that good churches are like good preachers. We're all mixtures. And I've seen enough goodness in the worst of us and enough badness in the best of us that it behooves the rest of us to lighten up on all of us. Really. Especially when we throw around that word good. Like good Friday. You know that one? What's good about it? Pregnant with meaning. One day while Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, he upset everybody in the house because he healed a crippled woman. So Jesus got chewed out for being politically incorrect in a compassionate act on a hurting person. Jesus gives us the standard by which we measure our churches and ourselves. Jesus evaluated the religious community by love and grace much more than numbers. You know how we like to play the numbers game. It's the worst way to measure a congregation. But that's usually how we identify ourselves. But how many, how much? You know, a lot of folks look, uh, uh, look for congregations to be like a Billy Graham crusade. People streaming down the aisles. But if Jesus was as successful as that famous evangelist, there probably wouldn't be a church. He was satisfied with a dozen. That was enough for Jesus. And we light up over measurable stuff. Budgets, baptisms, buildings. He had no place to lay his head. Numerical, physical, financial things are what a lot of people think makes a church good. Especially if it builds up the institution. But Jesus would get us out of the book of Numbers and over in the book of Acts because that's what he's interested in. Or Luke's story here, when Jesus was the guest preacher, it was in the synagogue on the Sabbath when a woman showed up who had been incapacitated for 18 years. That's a long time. And she was unable to straighten up, crooked, bent over. And when Jesus saw her, He didn't mention her faith. He didn't brag on her faith. He just healed her. So this was a faithless healing in that sense. But he set her free from her infirmity. And immediately she stood up and praised God. And the regular folks there just loved it, loved it, loved it. But to the offended ones, doing something good was bad. And that's how a made-up mind can blind us to the difference between right and wrong. Made-up minds are bad about that. Indignant because Jesus did the right thing on the wrong day. 
He offended what we would call the establishment, the religious establishment. And Jesus called them a hypocrite. No lie. This flat called them hypocrites. He reminded them that they take better care of their animals than they do a suffering woman, a human being. And then Luke adds, when he said this, the Sabbath keepers were humiliated. But the regular people were delighted with all the wonderful things Jesus had done. Now for those with a modern perspective, this healing this woman seems like a no-brainer. I mean, it's obvious that she needs healing, and it's, it's just a no-brainer. But those in Jesus' day were aggrieved by what he did, and they scolded him because of it. A woman with an illness in those days was stigmatized, probably hadn't been touched over two decades by a single person. Imagine the isolation of no touch from another human. Her suffering wasn't then just a physical bondage. It was also social, it was emotional, and it was like religious quarantine for her for almost two decades. Because women were not allowed to participate in public worship then, Jesus was out of line when he stopped preaching to recognize her. In a sense, it interrupted him. He was interrupted by her because he quit preaching. And he recognized her, and then he took another step and healed her without anybody asking him to do so, remember. And so he offered her a rightful place within the worshiping community And boy, when he did that, he stepped on a heap of church landmines. Just blow up in your face when you think you're doing something good for somebody. Oh, that still happens. That's why I'm two feet shorter than I should be. (laughs) I stepped on enough church landmines. I used to be six foot seven when I started preaching. (laughs) Now look at me. (laughs) But... He stepped on one, and even the worse, uh, he made it worse uh, when he violated their interpretation of the Bible. Whoa. You do that at your peril. Messing with somebody's holy book can get you crucified. That is our faith. Some things are too serious to laugh about. And you can tell what somebody's idol is if they can't laugh about it. They worship it. They tried to beat Jesus over the head with the book, quoting from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 9, where it says, Six days shalt thou labor, but on the seventh day it is the Sabbath, when you shall not do any work. And that was the problem. We've got it here in the book. And Jesus broke the rule. But he had common sense, for God's sake. Lord, if we had more of that, the world would be so much better. And Jesus had common sense, so he took the scripture seriously, but not always literally. Can you make that distinction? Uh, people, some people just take it literally and forget about the seriousness. But not Jesus. 
It's unrealistic to think that our rules can cover every situation that involves human beings. They're way too complex. The world is way too complex to think that we can make a rule for every situation. There are always exceptions. Sometimes you have to go beyond the sacred page. And this was one of those times to do what's right regardless. And that takes guts. In, in that society and in this society still today. Because there's always a price to pay when you do stuff like that. Nobody knew it better than Jesus. So the picky, picky crowd piles on. And when it came down to a person or a rule, Jesus went with the person every time. Love takes precedent over the Sabbath. That's the gist of this story. And grace is more important than our pet biblical interpretations. And mercy has primacy over cultural tradition. And forgiveness is preferable to orthodox doctrine. Now we're coming close to what a good church is. You measure that. Measure yourself by that. Measure yourself by Jesus I got amused up in Rhode Island and Providence because tourists would come. 5,000 guests visit a church in First Baptist Church in America, 300 years old. Oldest wooden structure, still in use today in New England, 185-foot steeple. Raised by the Boston Tea Party shipbuilders in three and a half days. Still standing. It's a sight to see. So a lot of visitors come. And we're used to guests, and they bring a lot of busloads from Texas and the Midwest and stuff. And, and I got amused when they would ask me two questions, invariably. Day after day, you know, I get these questions, and uh, they wanted to know, what's the difference between American Baptists and Southern Baptists? And uh, they wanted to know, how big is your church? They never say, how little is it? <laughs> they, they always say, how big it is. Well, it wasn't a very big church numerically, about 100, 150. But it was a church and not a museum. That was my reason for being there. So on the difference between American Baptists and Southern Baptists, I, I could shut them up. I'd say, American Baptists say there ain't no hell, and Southern Baptists say the hell there ain't. <laughs> oh, that's a big difference. <laughs> They quit asking me that after I did that. And on the one, how big is your church? I said, it's big enough to have something in it to offend everybody. <laughs> and if compassion and acceptance offend somebody, then we're in mighty good company. And it's something we ought to be proud of, not ashamed of. Because that's like Jesus. I recall a troubled woman that came to my church office, and she needed to talk. And she shared a lot of her background, but the real reason she came was theological. That's why she came to a pastor instead of a psychiatrist. She came for a theological reason. You know what she allowed is how she didn't want to go to heaven. Now, have you ever... You know anybody that, that didn't want to go to hell? I don't want to go to hell. 
Well, this was her. And I, and I thought everybody wants to go to heaven. Not her. Because she had a good reason for not wanting to go. Her mama was one of those helicopter moms, you know, hovering all around her. And, and uh, any time her kid went out, she just really got on her and was afraid she was going to do something bad. And she was very suspicious and very controlling of her daughter. But to get leverage on her, mom would threaten her with heaven. Now, I've known of threatening folks with hell. You know, a lot of preachers do that to get them to walk the straight and narrow. But this mother threatened her kid with heaven. You're not going to go to heaven if you're bad. Now, think of that message. Over and over she heard that until she finally confessed, Now, I don't even want to go to heaven. I'm afraid there will be people there like her. You know, we're going to be some surprises. Some people there we don't think would make it, and some we thought would make it that aren't. That's my guess. I hope I'm the ones that make it. <laughs> Stuff like that catches you off guard. Now, Liv and I, we didn't beat our kids over, over head with church or heaven or hell or the Bible, and they turned out just fine. Oh, they got grounded a few times, but nothing eternal. Like you're grounded forever. <laughs> There's nothing to make them have to grovel before a preacher. You know, a lot of families do that to their kids. Hers was a unique question. Will I go to hell for not wanting to go to heaven? Now that says a lot about her family, her upbringing. It says a lot about how they treated her, and it also says what a good church should do about it. Lord knows we need good churches. In my time, I spent a lot of time correcting some messed up theology. You won't believe. Fifty years, a lot of time correcting some messed up theology that people picked up along the way from home, and from other churches. So I hope nobody here today is afraid of going to hell for not wanting to go to heaven. A good church won't mess up people's minds like that or their souls. They will instead encourage minds that are whole, that are sound, that are healthy. So my goal has never been to make lots of churches. I wouldn't call me an evangelist that has to establish lots of churches. I think we've got enough churches now. But I think we ought to make churches we have good. I am for giving the ones we have some vitality to make it mean something to the people who come there so they will want to come back to be people-oriented, to be mission-driven, to be Christ-centered. It'll do that. That's a good church. A winsome congregation that is open-minded, open-hearted, open-handed. And if it offends, then at least it'll make God smile. A good church will settle for nothing less than quality worship, uplifting music, 
that leads to sacrificial sharing and servanthood. That's like Jesus. Like a hospital that touches our wounds with healing and has no more shame to sinners than an infirmary is of sick people. Like a filling station that inflates our emptiness with inspiration and spiritual power to stand up to what life bowls down your alleys. And it can be anything and everything. And you better have something on the inside to meet it. Because if you don't, it'll do you in. And like a lighthouse, beaming the good news of the stories of Jesus around and around in this community, providing direction when the bottom falls out, and a sense of confidence when times are uncertain, to keep us off the rocky shoals where people end up with shipwrecked lives. I sense there is a lot about this church that's attractive and hopeful. Not the least being an alternative congregation, specializing in grace. Lord knows we need more of that. And so... From what I've seen so far of you all, I'd have to say, well done, thou good and faithful servants. Keep up what you're doing. Be proud. Now, I never make predictions, especially about the future. Did you get that? I never make predictions, especially about the future. But I do make promises. And here is the promise. Any church that heals like a hospital and fills souls like a service station and inspires like a lighthouse will always have a bright future because that's the direction Jesus is going. Like the messenger said on Easter Day at the empty tomb, he goes before you. That is his job. To go before us. Our job is to follow. So keep on moving in that direction. And I believe the folks in Oklahoma City will look at this fine church and say, now that's what I call a good church. One I'm proud to be a part of. Because it's a place where the people try to be like Jesus.